So assuming for the sake of argument that before uh, Walmart had discriminated and and when they made the changes, they were no longer discriminating, there's actually only a relatively narrow window, um, one, for plaintiffs of who's going to end up being in the class, and two, for how much in back pay they would be entitled to. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Marsha Kazarosian, and today I am hosting as a guest host for Craig and Bob, who are both away on business. I've hosted my own legal show here on the Legal Talk Network called The Power of Attorney, but today we're going to talk about the Walmart case, which the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear on appeal by Walmart to determine its validity as a class action. Just a little bit of background about myself. In my legal practice, I have litigated many gender discrimination cases, including a precedent-setting one in Haverhill, Massachusetts against the Haverhill Golf and Country Club, which was actually the first case of its kind to go to trial in the country. And I was fortunate enough for my clients to win a multi-million dollar verdict, which became a landmark case. Certainly, this area of law that we're going to talk about today is very important to me. And before we jump into the topic, I'd like to first thank our sponsors, SunTrust Uh, offering private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com forward slash law. And also Clio, which is a web-based practice management. And that is at goclio, G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Now, back in 2001, the original Walmart suit, which was Dukes versus Walmart, was brought by Betty Dukes, who was a greeter at the company store in Pittsburgh, California. She claimed that she was paid less than men and denied promotion. Later, about six female employees also joined Dukes in a class action suit. Walmart has denied these allegations. Now, a lawsuit on behalf of one and a half million women employees at Walmart against Walmart is under review by the Supreme Court to decide whether it should or should not proceed as a class action. Now, joining me today to discuss this case is Professor Marsha L. McCormick from St. Louis University Law. Professor Marsha L. McCormick joined the St. Louis University Law faculty as an associate professor in 2009 with expertise in the areas of employment and labor law, federal courts, as well as gender and the law. A very prolific blogger, Professor McCormick, is a co-editor and contributor to the Workplace Professor blog, which provides daily information on developments in the law of the workplace and scholarship about it. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Marsha. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. And it's great to talk to another Marsha for a change, even though you spell your name differently than I do. (laughs) I know. It's unusual to run into another Marsha, frankly. Well, we are a unique group. Um, (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about how the Walmart case got to the Supreme Court. Uh, Walmart claimed that current and former female employees' claims were too diverse to proceed as a single class action lawsuit. What do you think about that? Um, well, the 
first, let me say that the size of the class is actually somewhat disputed. Um, the plaintiffs do not claim that large 1.5 million number that you mentioned and suggest that the class is closer to something like 500,000, still very large. Um, and one of the things that the Ninth Circuit did when it decided this case was it narrowed the decision a little bit from what the district court had decided. Um, and, uh, decided to exclude from the class women who no longer worked at Walmart in 2001 when the case was originally brought. So that shrunk the class a little bit. How, do, how does that narrowing and limiting affect the case overall, or do, do you think that it does? Well, I think that um, to the extent that the concerns about the number of uh, members of the class relate to the manageability of the class, which is one of the um, concerns that we have to look at under Rule 23, um, at least under uh, under B3, um, the smaller the smaller the class, even though still large, um, is going to affect our analysis then of how manageable a class is likely to be. It also um, by narrowing the class in terms uh, in a qualitative sense. So for pe- for women who um, worked at Walmart from 2001 on, it might also uh, make it more likely that the uh, the interests of the class are more common um, and make a better argument for uh, similarity in practices across all of the Walmart stores, um, which, again, is something that has to be true in order for this class to be certified. And, and just for a second, I want to ask a, a little bit about federal court rule 23, which talks about, among other things, the prerequisites for a class. A- am I correct in, in summarizing that generally... Um, in order to present a class to be certified, you want to show that the class is so numerous that there's no way you're going to get all the members together. It's impractical and that there are questions that are common for law, in fact, um, to the other members of the class. Um, is that one of the two things that are the criteria and are there other things that will be considered? Right. So those are um, those are the first two things that have to be true, that essentially that uh, the class is so numerous that joinder of everyone in an aggregate aggregate action is impracticable. Um, there are questions of law and fact common. Uh, the claims or defenses of the representative parties are typical of the class um, and that those representatives will fairly and adequately protect the interests of the class. So that's the threshold showing that has to be made. And then there are a few more depending on the type of class action that you have going forward. Um, so one, um, the, the class here, uh, one of the uh, ways that the plaintiffs are seeking class certification is under 23B2, um, which uh, involves a suits for injunctive relief. Um, so when the uh, defendant is going to, um, has, has acted in ways that are generally applicable to the class, so the same way as to all class members, um, making injunctive relief appropriate, that's a ground on which to satisfy or to certify the class. Okay. Um, or even if that's not true, um, if the court finds that the questions of law or fact common to the cl- members of the class predominate, um, then it can certify the class. And then there are different implications depending on which provision, which of those two provisions the class is certified under. Okay. Now, just going back a second to the actual allegations that have been made, and uh, there have been some very hard-to-believe stories about the alleged discrimination in Walmart. Um, What about these female employees? What rights do they claim particularly were violated by Walmart? 
Well, they they claim that they're they're simply not being treated the same way that men are in decisions about pay and decisions about eligibility for promotion. Um, and so uh, the basic the basic argument seems to be that generally speaking, for the same kinds of work, women were being paid less than men, and that there was this culture within Walmart um, of uh, and this is sort of a, it may be a counterintuitive argument, but there was a culture at Walmart of allowing um, an extremely large amount of subjective discretion within uh, the management structure that allowed managers essentially to tap people on the shoulder uh, for promotion. Uh, mm-hmm. And not, there was no, there weren't postings of opportunities for promotion. Women didn't know to apply. There were so other requirements. So really, there's really no criteria or anything that an employee could rely upon to say, here's what I need to do to get promoted. And if I do these things and follow the rules, I will be promoted just like anyone else. Right. So so not not criteria, but also just not even knowing when opportunities existed. Mm, okay. Now, am, am I correct in still saying that even you, you said that the class is smaller, but is this still the largest employment discrimination case in U.S. history? Yes, it is. And what does that alone say about this case? Um, well, it, it, different people are making different things out of that. Um, one, it says that it simply may be a reflection of the fact that Walmart is the largest employer in the United States. Right, right. Um, and any time that you have the largest employer in the United States um, accused of a practice store-wide or company-wide, you're going to pretty much automatically end up with the largest employment discrimination case in U.S. history. <laughs> um, it could also... Uh, others are, are arguing that um, it's a sign that the allegations aren't really discrimination, in part because they just simply cannot believe that <laughs> so many different people could be acting in the same way as to each of these women. Well, that's what happens when you have a culture, though. Right. Everybody acts the same way. That's right. Um, And Um, that's part of the plaintiff's case. Tell us why uh, it would be easier for Walmart to take this on one case at a time. Walmart, so so the argument in support of that is that one of the things that uh, Walmart attorneys are saying is that people with weak claims, claims that probably would not, if they had to bring it themselves, by themselves, uh, make it past, say, a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment, are going to be benefited by the people who might have strong claims. So if there do happen to be, in Walmart's view, one or two women uh, in this class who actually were dis- ex- you know, overtly discriminated against based on uh, their sex, then everybody else who maybe something bad happened but it wasn't discrimination are going to benefit from the bad facts related to the few plaintiffs' right. stories. Um, and so that, uh, it's sort of like a, a, a pulling, a pulling up the bad stories. And in fact, I think you referred to the Vioxx litigation, um, earlier when we were talking. Uh, that's the problem that, um, a lot of people saw in the Vioxx litigation that people who had terrible outcomes because of the drug, um, got very, would have gotten very, very large settlements on their, uh, on their own, had very serious damage damages were um, sort of pulling up the claims of people who were just sort of afraid something bad might happen to them. So it sort of dilates it across the board. And and, and then really what you've described to me is a, a strategy that um, is sort of out of the Vioxx case, isn't it? Um, it could be, but um, but I would suggest actually that uh, that Walmart might might 
actually be better served by having this be a class action, um, especially for the injunctive relief part. To the extent that um, if the if the plaintiffs prove their case, the plaintiffs um, for the injunctive relief cannot opt out of the class. They can't bring their own claims, um, oh, uh, right. even, so, even for back pay. And so Walmart so gets to deal with bit. this. Yeah, Walmart gets to p- deal with this once, and then it's done. Um, and so if Walmart wins, no woman can bring the same, you know, that would be a member of this class can bring this same case. Now, there are now women still who would be members of the class for that might still be able to bring compensatory damages or punitive damages cases. So there still might be some liability for Walmart. But, um, but really, having to deal with this whole thing once, it would seem to me, would be much more efficient and beneficial than having to have hundreds of thousands of um, individual lawsuits to deal with. And that, so that forecloses everybody else in those same issues. Right. Now, um, Walmart has a lot of big companies backing it in this. If, and if I'm wrong, you can, you can please tell me. But if I'm right, does that have a bearing on this case? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, I think there's a, there's a pragmatic concern. Some people believe that our current Supreme Court is extremely pro-business. And so to the extent that a lot of large corporations that, you know, run the American economy think that this is a terrible idea, there's some concern that, um, that that will be more persuasive. Um, and so you have sort of the, the big, you know, the story of the big corporate corporations, the engine, uh, the, uh, captains of industry opposing this and, you know, what's the uh, individual troublemakers trying to bring down, you know, <laughs> all of the American economy. So to the extent that that sort of taps into that story, um, yeah. But it's also it, a David and Goliath, isn't it really? Well, and it could be a David and Goliath. I guess that's the that's the sort of counterpart. Um, but the uh, current Supreme Court isn't as sympathetic to David right now. <laughs> well, um we need to take a break, if we could, just for a few minutes. And um, when we return, we will be talking some more with Marsha McCormick, who is at the St. Louis University of Law School, about the Walmart class action suit. And we will be right back. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and wading through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio, 
Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Marsha Kazarosian. I'm guest hosting for Bob and Craig today, and we are joined today by Professor Marsha McCormick from the St. Louis University Law School and co-editor and contributor to the Workplace Prof blog. We've been talking about the Walmart class action suit, and Marsha, welcome back. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, to explain a little bit about what you think the criteria is for the Supreme Court right now to decide on this class action issue. Well, the the court has um, certified two questions, um, and they and one of them is not a question that either of the parties asked the court to certify. So, um, the two questions are generally whether or not the claim for back pay can be part of the um, of the claim for injunctive relief. Mm-hmm. Um, and second was is whether the um, claim for injunctive relief um, is consistent with the first part of the class action rule about commonality um, of claims of the class. And which one of those was not asked by either side? It was the second, whether the class certification ordered um, is consistent with the first part of the class uh, of the class litigation rule. Okay. Um, now, given the current makeup or what people perceive as the current makeup of the Supreme Court, what would you expect to see as an outcome in this? Well, it's it's a little bit difficult to say. Um, the uh, as I as I said earlier, the uh, a lot of people view the current Supreme Court as very um, friendly to business, and so to the extent that this seems like um, a big pitfall um, or a way to hold businesses liable that's a little bit looser than what we might think that Title VII should provide. Um, I would suggest that the court would reverse um, and say that this was not an appropriately certified class action. Um, but on the other hand, um, sometimes it's really hard to predict in employment discrimination cases how uh, members of the court are going to rule. Um, sometimes Some members of the court are big fans of um, interpreting statutes very literally, and so they sometimes come out in what we think of as liberal or pro-employee positions when the language of the statute seems to um, allow them to do so. And so they they act in ways that we don't expect them to. So um, the language of the of the rule may actually make some of those people um, rule in favor of the plaintiffs. Um, and so I think it's hard to predict. So that's interesting. So the the um, the language of the statute, because they're conservative in interpreting them, may very well cause them to act what appears to be more liberally. Yes. And as you said earlier, the um, the fact that uh, being certified as a class may be more beneficial to Walmart may also appear to have the Supreme Court lean toward a more liberal or pro-employee um, de- decision on this. Is that is that a safe thing to say? It's, it's 
possible, although um, Walmart doesn't seem to be presenting it that way, nor do the other um, do the other business interests who I'm sure who have filed amicus briefs already at the cert stage, and I'm sure will file amicus briefs um, at the merit stage as well. I doubt that they will take that position. Mm. How do you, how would you say that this case has affected Walmart's reputation already? Um, you know, it's really hard to say. There are a number of um, sort of grassroots campaigns um, targeting Walmart for their labor practices. Uh, uh, there are allegations about union busting and um, and allegations about discrimination on the basis of sex and, and on the basis of race. And people even have websites um, basically trying to or trying to publicize their point of view about this. And yet Walmart is an incredibly profitable company. Um, a lot of people uh, uh, really love the store, um, like the culture, like the uh, fact that they are paying less for things. And so it doesn't seem to be hurting Walmart's business interests. Of course, it's always hard to say, well, would they have even greater profits if they didn't, you know, have these allegations against them? <laughs> is that um, even possible? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's great profits. They are a very profitable corporation. And and from even just from my perspective of what um, uh, from the outside looking in, their PR is unbelievable. I mean, just if you look at some of the biography on TV that they have of of Walton and of Walmart, it makes it look like it's one of the the most wonderful American countries on the that there are. And and there could be nothing better and they could do nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. I think does that also affect their uh, reputation and how they counter this? Um, it could be. It could. Um, it could also be that they have enough other things that they focus on, um, and they're in the the public relations work actually that they do with their employees. I think is also very significant. Um, so that there are a lot of employees who, some of whom may be um, disgruntled, but a lot of employees who believe very strongly in much of the culture of Walmart. And so not just outside, but inside, Walmart has done a lot of work um, to uh, not to counter, so not even addressing specific allegations, but instead simply promoting um, things about itself in a good light. So, for mm -hmm. example, it's Green Campaign. Um, it's, uh, low prices, you know, live better campaign. All of right. those things don't address these allegations at all, but simply ignore them in ways that people pay more attention to. Right. So if the other stuff isn't talked about, it's not happening. Right. <laughs> How do you think this case will impact other workplace cases or other workers' rights issues against big corporations? Um, it's it's a little hard to say. I mean, I think that a lot of big employers are nervous because they're afraid of big class actions being brought against them. Um, but uh, there have been a number of large class actions brought in other contexts, not discrimination, but um, fair labor standards, which are wage and hour cases, um, that have also made employers really nervous. And so to the extent that they change their behavior to comply with the law, if they weren't before, um, it doesn't seem to me that those kinds of concerns should be any larger after this case than any other case. Um, I mean, I think it's th that part of it, it may look from the outside like this is a disaster for Walmart just because of the sheer numbers of, play, of potential class members. But at the same time, as I said earlier, Walmart is the largest employer in the country. 
Um, and so the the class is proportional to the right. to the workforce. And so for right. other large companies that have lots of workers, yes, it might be a little scary to think of a of a large portion of their workforce suing them. But at the same time, it's proportional to the workforce that they have. So I, I guess I just don't see it as as more scary than say to a small business who have. Uh, who might have less in terms of capital and things like that, for whom the prospect of a, the same proportion of the workforce suing them is also very scary. Well, really, it's, it, it sounds like what you're describing is that this case will have impact on all workplace cases, not big ones or small ones, but all workplace cases. Well, in the sense that every that if it's successful in ultimately, so if the class gets certified and if they prove their claims, um, or if they settle, then then I would say yes, that that is going to be because anytime plaintiffs win in widely publicized cases, employers get nervous. Right. Up until now, the largest, I believe, the largest gender bias settlement to date was five hundred and eight million dollar payment in two thousand. It was by the federal government who paid it out to 1,100 women who said they were denied jobs at the Voice of America and U.S. Information Agency. Given the size of what's going on and the numbers of people, do you think that there could be billions involved in the Walmart case if it were to proceed to a class action? Um, I think that there. I think that there could be. Uh, it depends on a lot of things. Um, each individual. So. A lot will depend on whether, uh, on how long the discrimination that's been alleged actually occurred. So this case mm-hmm. has been going on for almost 10 years. Walmart changed its practices pretty significantly shortly after the lawsuit was filed. So there may be a large, and, and if those changes, so assuming for the sake of argument that before uh, Walmart had discriminated and and when they made the changes, they were no longer discriminating. There's actually only a relatively narrow window, um, one, for plaintiffs of who's going to end up being in the class, and two, for how much in back pay they would be entitled to. Um, and so it could go into the billions of dollars, but a lot depends on the merits here and uh, whether Walmart ends up being found to have discriminated and how much each individual woman would end up being entitled to. Um, what's more likely, I think, because uh, if the class is extremely large, is that there will be some kind of um, algorithm or actuarial table set up to decide sort of, I don't want to say on an arbitrary basis, but given representative people of the class, what, what likely damages each person might get, and they'll be relatively small. So when you describe that they stopped their practices or changed them when this came out, uh, that is is really serving to limit their potential damages. Oh yes, and really that's that's a, a life lesson for any em- employment issue such as this, where if there's actions or or um, behavior that's alleged, uh, an immediate change uh, to the better, whether it's uh, taken as truth or not. Uh, is not necessarily a bad thing if you're going to try to limit damages in the future. Right. So if you're if there's any reason to be so even if you think that your prior practice was okay, making your practices even better is not going to 
um, one, is going to be viewed as rational and probably not be interpreted as an admission that the prior practice violated the statute. Um, And also is uh, to the extent that there might that you might possibly lose um, on those prior practices, it's going to mitigate any damages you have. Now, what impact, if any, do you think this would have on employment law and discrimination in going into the future within any companies? I mean, is this going to change the law or is it just going to hone it or uh, how is this going to impact the law? Well, a lot depends on getting to the merits, actually. So, so I'm not sure that the court's decision, the Supreme Court's decision on the class action piece is really going to change very much. Um, and that may be because, in my view, the, um, the, from what I've read, the plaintiffs do seem to have common claims. Uh, the members of the class do seem to have a pretty common claim, and it's just a relatively large class, um, and that's the only distinctive feature. Uh, I think that the that any real change would come at the merit stage. There is one sort of caveat to that, and and that is the kind of evidence that's been used um, to figure out whether the claims of the plaintiffs are representative, are common, are representative of the class, all of those things, um, is a uh, branch of social science that has also been used to prove discrimination itself. Um, and the use of that evidence um, and its acceptability could change the way that people view um, what discrimination actually is. Um, and so that could be a huge um, I mean, it already exists. We have a, a case called Price Waterhouse um, versus Hopkins from uh, the 80s in which this kind of evidence was used. And so it's, uh, it wouldn't be a new thing exactly, but uh, if it was accepted also in this context, um, it might further validate that kind of evidence. Well, that's interesting. That almost sounds like it could be a whole other program if that's what happens for more it's, discussion. Yeah. Well, Marsha, do you have, we're, we're winding down now and I, and it's not, we could talk about this forever. It's been fabulous and you've been great. I'm just wondering if you have any final thoughts that you could um, share with us. And, uh, and then if you could tell us a little bit about your contact information at the end. So if any other people listening may have questions or need to talk to you, they can get in touch with you. Sure. Um, well, so my final thought is that um, this is a big deal. This case in the Supreme Court is a big deal because the Supreme Court is hearing it. <laughs> it always makes things a big deal because it involves the country's largest employer um, and because it is an issue of national importance, sex discrimination. At the same time, I think average people may actually find it quite boring because it's about the rules of civil procedure. <laughs> uh right. Uh, so, and it may, and this part of it may not make that much of a difference. I see. Um, so those are my final thoughts. Um, in terms of my contact information, as you said, I'm a professor at St. Louis University School of Law. If um, people are interested in getting in touch with me, um, they can email me at mmccor20 at slu, S-L-U dot E-D-U. Um, they can look me up on the web at, uh, at SLU's website, and uh, they can also check out Workplace Prof blog, um, which is where I blog with my co-editors. Thank you so much, Marsha. It was a pleasure having you on the show. And I think that just about does it for Lawyer to Lawyer. Uh, please remember, anyone who's listening, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. You can also find all of the Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. And we will be back or 
Craig and Bob will be back next week to discuss yet another great legal topic. When you want legal, you think lawyer to lawyer. Thank you very much. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.